U.S.-Iranian tensions on the brink. Israel is just as awesome as ever. And don't we just love this group of freshmen, congresswomen? I mean, don't we, don't we, don't we just love how they rewrite basic reality? All this and an insane amount more on this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. And welcome to this week's ludicrously jam-packed, bring the host to the brink, information overload edition of Mideast News Brief. I am your host, Winston R. Holland. Can I just, uh, you guys mind if I just share a personal anecdote with you guys? Do you mind if we just stroll down memory lane for a minute and, uh, no, no freaking way, way too much to get to, forget that. We're about to go to war with Iran. Uh, Probably not. But who, I mean, really, who cares about my personal life? But what is actually crucial to your, as well as everyone else you know, and even don't know's personal life, as well as very existence, is that you subscribe to Mitty's News Brief on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or just tell Alexa to play Mitty's News Brief Podcast, and probably other places too. I really have no idea. Uh, And don't forget to leave a five-star review because this, yes, this show is undoubtedly your favorite show out of the 700,000 or so podcasts that apparently exist in the world. Also, please give us a like on Facebook at Mideast News Brief and on Twitter at Mideast Briefing at Mideast Briefing, where I try to keep the most important news and analysis of Middle East events coming your way. And of course, send love, hate, differing viewpoints, extremely petty or embarrassingly accurate insults to Brief at gmail.com. If you send negative email my way, please, please do not worry. I have very thin skin and I will take it personally. And wow, oh wow, what a difference a week can make, right? I've learned to not expect what I'll be talking about from week to week. And while a confrontation with Iran is always on the horizon, given the just suicidal, genocidal nature of that horrific terrorist regime, uh, I mean, especially as Trump just kills it. I mean, Trump is just killing it on the sanctions against this thuggish, evil, monstrous Islamic terror regime that oppresses the beautiful Persian people along with the persecution of Christians and other religious minorities. I was not quite expecting things to heat up like they have. Also, we are going to talk about an IRGC, that is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, who finally, after 40 years, the Trump administration, because they're actually sane, designated them as a terrorist organization, which is what they are. They are the primary protectors of the largest state sponsor of terror in the world. It is an Islamic state, Iran, without a doubt. It's an Islamic state, and it has uh, great aspirations and expectations for their future, uh, thanks in part to their uh, ludicrous eschatology that basically gives the idea that this 12th imam is going to come back and there's going to be a war and they're going to win and all this stuff. So they've, they've got some really jacked up theology, uh, which fuels them. But beyond that, they are just a uh, horrific terror regime. 
Um, so anyway, there's a big uh, defector that we're going to get to. So we're, we're talking a lot about Iran today. I'm going to also try to get to uh, discussions of Israel and so much great news coming on out of Israel. And of course, like I said in the intro, we just have some just, it, it's Rashida Tlaib and, uh, Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, not to mention Cortez, just seem to be uh, the, just the gifts that keep on giving. So what a, what a wonderful what a wonderful addition to our United States Congress to have uh, uh, just uh, basically enemies of the United States in there. But I digress. So I, I want to, with Iran, I want to basically start the show off with uh, discussing where we are right now and where things look like they are going uh, in the standoff. And we'll get to all of the juicy stuff as, as we go, so please stick with me. We have a lot to get to, but I think by the time we're finished with this broadcast that we are going to have a, a really good general understanding of the, con- of the conflict on, on a large scale and, and in some respects on, the, uh, on a small scale. All right, so I want to uh, start off with a, an article out of National Review by Fred Flights. Fred Flights is part of the Center for Security Policy, uh, definitely a foreign uh, policy wonk and hawk who uh, knows his stuff in this regard. So I wanted to hit a few things uh, on this on this article. Understanding the surge in tensions with Iran. Fred Flights, uh, this is from a few days ago. Uh, actually, I think the 12th, actually, but it gives a great, great backdrop. So he says, over the weekend... The White House announced it was sending an aircraft carrier strike group and bombers to the Middle East in response to, quote, troubling and escalatory indications and warnings related to Iran. These warnings reportedly were Israeli intelligence reports indicating Iran was planning attacks against U.S. personnel and allies in the Middle East. So what have they deployed, right? You might be curious. Okay, what 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 are tax dollars going to? Right? What's what's uh you know uh, streaming across uh, the Atlantic to a potential major conflict? Um, I'm going to jump over to the the Middle East forum, and again, all of these articles referenced will be up at midisnewsbrief.com in the show notes, so you can go and you can do your own research and you can see for yourself. All right, so this is a quick, so I'm going to jump over to this and we'll jump back to that. But I just wanted to, to do a rundown. Uh, they, they give some great pictures um, and just details of, of everything we're sending over. So uh, one of the things we're sending over is the USS Arlington, which is a 24,000-ton, 207-meter-long ship commissioned in 2013. The USS Arlington is a San Antonio-class amphibious transport vessel. I don't know what San Antonio class means. Maybe you do. It is designed to transport U.S. Marines, vehicles, and aircraft to be used to support amphibious assaults. It can carry up to 800 troops with a dozen vehicles, although with the Sixth Fleet, which operates in the Atlantic and Mediterranean, it was ordered to join the deployment, according to U.S. Naval Institute News. 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit was dispatched. Elements of the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit were also dispatched. They tra- transited the Strait of Hormuz with the amphibi- uh, amphibious ship Kearsarge. What's the Kearsarge? The amphibious ready group has been deployed to the Persian Gulf, streaming or steaming around various countries. 
It has up to 4,500 sailors and Marines aboard its various units. These include, according to Naval Today, the USS Arlington, which is mentioned above, the dock landing ship USS Fort McHenry, a helicopter squadron, a tactical air squadron, and a naval beach group. So, I mean, you've got aircraft carriers, uh, you've got land vehicles, helicopters, I mean, all kinds of stuff that are with this uh, Kearsarge ARG. And I was just really learning about aircraft carriers that, uh, unbeknownst to the kind of typical citizen that may, such as myself, that may or may not know a whole lot about aircraft carriers, is they're actually very fast. And they're actually so fast that their speeds are actually top secret. We're not supposed to even know (laughs) how fast aircraft carriers go. Not only this, but they turn on a dime. Uh, they can turn very quickly, and they actually go very quickly. So I, I think an aircraft carrier, I think of it like, you know, strolling, strolling along at about like 30 miles an hour, and they're going to turn around, man. That's, that's a three-hour-long process. Not so much. They're very fast, and they're very agile and adroit. So that's pretty cool. Also, the USS McFall and USNS Allen Shepard. The destroyer USS McFall and the ammunition ship USNS Allen Shepard were photographed in the Strait of Hormuz on May 7th. They had been in the Red Sea in April. And then, boom, B-52 bombers, two two B-52 bombers uh, landed Thursday in Qatar, part of four B-52 sent to the region. They flew from Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana and were supported by two KC-10s. It right, goes into some more stuff there. USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier strike force passed through the Suez Canal. If you're not familiar with where that is, it's a canal constructed in the 1800s that basically connects the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So they're just, uh, just east of Egypt and just west of Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's the Red Sea, and this canal goes all the way north uh, up to the uh, Mediterranean Sea constructed back in like the 1850s or so. Um, Patriot missiles. U.S. Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan also sent a Patriot missile battery to bolster Central Command. Also, F-35s. In mid-April, the U.S. sent several F-35s to the UAE. These include maintenance and support units and so forth. So we've got bombers. We've got F-35 fighter jets. We've got aircraft carriers. We have Missile systems, uh, we have, I mean, all kinds of stuff. We've got, I mean, thousands of, of troops potentially, um, all, uh, I mean, basically within striking distance, ready for orders from their commander-in-chief. So this is, it's not a small operation. We're also going to get to in a second that we really, I personally don't think we have to worry about any kind of large-scale conflict with Iran. And I actually have, it's not just wishful thinking, <laughs> Um, I actually have some some reasons behind that, so so stick with me. If this is the first you're hearing about this, I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't want you to be too alarmed. Uh, of course, there's always a possibility of a real deal military conflict. I am not all knowing; only God is all knowing. Um, and so, uh, again, that's not something I can predict with like 100% certainty. But this is a really really bad time for Iran to be waging war against the strongest military power in the world. 
All right, so let's let's go back. Let's kick back to uh, again understanding the surge in tensions with Iran. Press reports differed on the nature of the planned Iranian attacks. There were there were reports that Iranian officials gave a green light to its terrorist proxies to attack U.S. military personnel in Iraq and Syria. Other reports said Iran planned to orchestrate drone attacks in the Red Sea and Persian Gulf. There also was a report that Iran had moved short-range ballistic missiles by boat and waters off its shores. So you got all these reports coming in, right? Oh, there's, uh, uh, they're going to do drone attacks, and even that, like, uh, Houthi rebels in, in Yemen were going to do drone attacks and so forth. Um, you know, they had moved these missiles, and there's one report that, you know, uh, Mossad, the is- Israeli um, CIA, was basically going to, you know, was um, tipping them off to all this information. So you got reports kind of going everywhere, and it's really hard to know what is, what's the real deal on the reports and, and, and what is not. Now, again, we're going to get to the IRGC defector, and you, you, <laughs> you're not going to believe this defector. Like, if you want one guy in Iran to defect... If you want one guy in Iran to defect, this is the guy. I want you to think, okay, if I wanted one guy in the Iranian terrorist regime to deflect, who would that guy be? So sit tight. We're going to get there. There has been speculation that Iran was planning these attacks in retaliation for damage done to the Iranian economy by sanctions the U.S. reimposed after withdrawing from the 2015 nuclear deal, JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. These attacks may also have been planned in response to the Trump administration's recent designation of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization. About time. Thank God for President Trump. Recognizing reality. President Trump's critics are claiming, and isn't that something so much that Trump has done, it's just recognizing reality, whether it's something like this or recognizing Jerusalem as a capital of Israel. I mean, <laughs> you, this is not difficult. Any of the other presidents before us could have been these like world changer types, and all they'd have to do is recognize reality. It's uh, truly phenomenal. Anyway, President Trump's critics are claiming that a surge in tensions with Iran is in response to his withdrawal from the JCPOA, proved the U.S. withdrawal from this agreement was a mistake and increase the threat from Iran. But the facts suggest otherwise. Iran is desperately trying to reverse the effects of President Trump's successful Iran policy, known as the maximum pressure strategy. And boy, is it, because we're about to get to <laughs> the, the extent that Iran is feeling uh, the Trump train. It is a locomotive that is just bashing right into the Iranian Islamic Republic coming to the rescue of the beautiful Persian people, uh, as well as the just religious minorities and my brothers and sisters in Christ that have suffered for decades under this horrific horrific regime. But I will, I will say this, they have been brave, they have been bold, they have been faithful, faithful, faithful to Christ uh, amidst such, uh, such uh, difficulty and, and persecution. But I believe that we're going to see a change in some respect in that regard. The Trump administration recently toughened its sanctions against Iran. Last month, it ended exemptions to oil sanctions. What does that mean? 
All right, so look, we're putting on these sanctions, but we're going to give you some time, right? We're going to give you some time to wean off of, of Iranian oil and go find some oil elsewhere. So the, so the Trump administration, I think about every three months or so, kept signing waivers to these nations that were still buying Iranian oil. Okay, we're giving you more time, we're giving you more time, we're giving you more time. And then, oh, May 1st, yeah, no more. You buy Iranian terrorist oil, you don't get to do business in the United States of America. And as we'll see, you would much rather do business in the United States of America than in the uh, Islamic terrorist republic of Iran. Yesterday, oh, I'm sorry, nuclear sanctions have also been strengthened, strengthened, including a demand that Iran cease uranium enrichment. Yesterday, the Trump administration extended U.S. sanctions on Iran's steel, aluminum, copper, and iron sec- sectors. Guys, I mean, you know what this means. You buy oil, you buy metals from Iran, no business with us. Look, if, if you were a company, who would you choose to do business with? A trillion-dollar U.S. economy that's doing awesome, it's humming, we're over 3% GDP. Um, uh, the economy has just come back in amazing ways. Manufacturing is coming back. Trump waved his magic wand, <laughs> right? Which uh, apparently Obama didn't think that he had. Trump uh, waved his magic wand, and we are seeing some uh, incredible results, over 3% GDP, something the left thought we would never be able to get to, that we would have to stick with the 2% or lower GDP for all time. And, oh, and tech is, re- you know, robots are replacing everybody. We can't have manufacturing jobs anymore and all, and all this stuff. Um, dang, at least try, man. <laughs> at least try. Don't give up on our country and on our people so easily. And all of these Midwestern towns just decimated just decimated by the manufacturing that has just left the country over the past few decades. So would you rather the $20 trillion U.S. economy or a $450 billion, yes, $20 trillion U.S. economy versus $450 billion Iranian economy? We're looking at like 140th the size. It's extremely unstable. Right? Who would you rather do business with, and not to mention this $450 billion economy just so happens to be the largest state sponsor of, of terror in the world. Now, I realize a lot of Euro- European countries could care less about the terrorism and their sad attempts to prop up the regime to protect their own financial interests, but at the end of the day, if it's Tehran or Washington, most sane people would make the right choice. That being said, the world is far from sane, uh, but the reality is that Tehran is feeling this big time. So let's, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, let's talk about all the metrics and the ways in which Iran is feeling this. Because this, I think, is going to be, if you're not familiar with it, I think it's going to be very illuminating to you just how much of a hit that Iran has taken. This is from the BBC. Uh, again, this will be linked at MideastNewsBrief.com. Uh, uh, so you'll be able to see all the charts and data in living color. Iran facing unprecedented, uh, excuse me, unprecedented pressure from international sanctions, Rouhani says. 
So a quick quote from uh, Rouhani, the chief terrorist in Iran. Renewed U.S. sanctions have led to worse economic conditions than during the country's 1980-88 war with neighboring Iraq, Mr. Rouhani said. His comments came amid rising tensions with the U.S., which last week deployed warships and warplanes to the Gulf. Mr. Rouhani, who has come under domestic political pressure, called for political unity to face down sanctions. Quote, During the war, we did not have a problem with our banks, oil sales, or imports and exports. And there were only sanctions on arms purchases, Mr. Rouhani told political activists in the capital, Tehran. The pressures by enemies is a war unprecedented in the history of our Islamic revolution. Yeah, because you finally have someone who will fight the war that you have been waging in one way or another against us for the past 40 years. Kind of nice, huh? Uh, I'm sure he was sorely disappointed when Donald Trump became president. Just like I'm sure they were sorely disappointed when Ronald Reagan became president. Oh, and what happened like five seconds after Reagan became president, was sworn in? They released the Iranian hostages that were holed up in the U.S. embassy. Hundreds of people set free simply by a man that believed in peace through strength taking office. Uh, the, the left will never give Reagan credit for that. Um, but why couldn't Carter do that? Why could he not do that? And Reagan could. He had the same resources at his disposal. He could have done it and didn't. The pressures by enemies is a war unprecedented in the history of our Islamic revolution, but I do not despair and have great hope for the future and believe that we can move past these difficult conditions provided that we are united. Of course, he is. this is the kind of stuff he's going to say, we're going to win, America's going to be defeated, death to America, blah, 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 blah. But the fact that he is coming out and actually admitting how uh, just disastrous these sanctions have been and disastrous the the Trump foreign policy toward Iran have been is it, it's pretty telling. So let's look at the different things that they are that they are facing. Economic growth, uh, GDP, GDP is uh, uh, GDP growth rate in 2016 uh, shot up to 12 percent. Right after the Iran nuclear deal, where you have a president of the United States ordering the delivery of Billions of dollars on pallets, unmarked currency, untraceable currency to the largest state sponsor of terror in the world? Do you not think that's going to go to kill some Jews, Christians, and Muslims and, and some others while they're at it? So Obama helped the largest state sponsor of terror help their GDP just shoot up to 12%, right? Um, in 2016, uh, Trump wins, and of course, Trump talking pretty tough on Iran. And in, in, in 2017, before any sanctions are even uh, reinstated, 
their GDP dropped to about uh, 4% growth by 2018. We're at about negative 4%, and with the sanctions reinstated, their, GP, their uh, GDP is, is growing at like negative 6%. So, I mean, we are, we are just seeing, this is International Monetary Fund estimates. So their gross domestic product is just getting hammered. And I have great compassion for the Iranian people that are feeling the effects of this. And I get as a Christian, that this is is hurting them, and I have compassion for them. But this is a genocidal terrorist regime, and for the long-term health and freedom of Iran, the long-term health and freedom, really, of, of the Middle East and, and far beyond, um, Iran has proxies all over the world, this thuggish terrorist regime must be defeated. And I know that the Iranian people are going to feel the, the brunt of that for a few years, and they have been feeling that, and I have compassion for them. But my prayer is that eventually this regime will fall and it will be replaced, and the country can begin on a course of, of healing. Uh, there, are so, there have been so many brave protesters um, uh, I remember seeing a picture of this this one lady, you know, just standing up. She was standing up on something just in the middle of a crowd with her hand raised, just defiant, defiant against the evil authorities over her. And there's just been, uh, and it's just kind of this iconic picture. But th- that's, I mean, essentially, she's one of many in the Iranian Republic that have been just, very brave. I mean, very brave amidst all that. So, again, I great compassion. They're, they're gonna they're gonna feel it, unfortunately. But my prayer is that um, it's worth it in the short term, so that for the long term of their country and the rest of the world, we don't have genocidal maniacs with nuclear weapons at their disposal, ready to annihilate um, Israel. And beyond, right? Remember, they're the little Satan. We're the big Satan. Let's look at Iran's oil output. 2012, under the Obama administration, U.S. sanctions on Iran's oil industry. Um, It looks like uh, about May of 2012 or so, uh, the EU bans imports of, of Iranian oil. March, and it just, so it drops to, uh, so at the beginning, I'm sorry, at the beginning we're looking at about uh, 3.6 million barrels a day in in production. And then, again, there's sanctions, the EU bans imports, and now we're down to, you know, by about January 2013, we're at about uh, about 2.7. Billion, uh, I'm sorry, million a day of of oil. All right, so then we go. So it stays pretty low. Then we go to sanctions lifted following the nuclear deal. Right, so sanctions were lifted March 2016 following the disastrous nuclear deal. And what happens? Oil production goes way way up to to about 
million barrels per day. And then uh, U.S. sanctions reinstated in 2018. And then it just begins to, to plummet. So, uh, you know, it was up to, like I said, about 3.7 million barrels a day. And now, uh, well, as of March 2019, we're now back to about 2.7. So dropped by uh, a million barrels per day, thanks to our sanctions. And and it's falling. That that was a couple months ago. Um, And now that, uh, again, now that the waivers have been, uh, now that the waivers have been put in, uh, are no longer being signed, it's, it's dropping even, even further. So uh, it looks like uh, Iran oil exports. Um, so the first number is made to October 2018. I don't want to bore you with all these numbers. I'll just hit a few. Made to October 2018, were uh, China. Uh, they were exporting about 590, um, about five, 590,000 barrels of oil per day. And then from November 2018 to March 2019, it's dropped to 360,000 barrels of oil per day. So, I mean, almost, you know, we're looking at like 40% drop. That is, that's a lot of money. And it's similar things for India, for Japan, for South Korea, for Taiwan, for Turkey. I mean, Italy, it went from 121,000 to zero. Greece, uh, Greece, it went from 85,000 per day to zero. I mean, this is this is hurting them badly. When I mentioned earlier about Iran does not want to get in a war right now, there's a reason why I said that. It wasn't my genius. <laughs> it was basic data, basic common sense. The currency has hit record lows. Um, the number of uh, Iranian... Rials, which is their currency, to one U.S. dollar at the unofficial market rate has just um, has just plunged. Uh, July 2017, it was about 40,000 rials to one U.S. dollar, and today it's about 140,000 rials to one U.S. dollar. I mean, that is some unbelievable currency weakening. What else? Inflation. My gosh. If we think our inflation is bad, go to, <laughs> go to Iran. Uh, in 2000, uh, let's see, about 2002, their inflation was at about 12%, and now it's approaching 40%. I mean, in their inflation, if you look at this chart, it has been all over the place. So, yeah, no, it, it is without a doubt... It is without a doubt um, getting hit really hard. Uh, incomes in Iran are falling as well. Um, so look, and, and again, that really hurts the, the the typical Iranian person. I just hope they can hold on, hope they can be strong, and that and just know that good things are on the horizon. I believe that without a doubt, Trump is doing a maximum pressure campaign on them economically, and I think we are going to see something positive in the future. What that looks like, I don't know. I wish I knew, um, but it has to be better than the situation right now. And 
Should we be alarmed? Like I mentioned earlier, should we really be alarmed by this standoff? Uh, James Carafano at the Daily Signal does not think we should be. And uh, this is what he says on uh, said on May 15th. Iran says it's not interested in a war with the United States. The U.S. says it's not interested in a war with Iran. The only parties who are making war talk are the press and pundits who just can't help fretting about all things Trump. It's true. They don't care. It's just Trump is wrong. Trump is wrong. Trump is wrong. No benefit of the doubt. It's just everything he does is wrong. It's just absolutely ludicrous. But the beautiful thing, (laughs) it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Believe me, it's a beautiful thing that Trump keeps just pressing on like a locomotive at 120 miles per hour. And he loves the fight. He loves to get into in there, he is God's hammer against this evil press and evil leftism that has reared its head. And he is just God's hammer against all that. I, that's what I believe. It is just a beautiful thing. This country was on, on the brink in 2016, and uh, uh, who knows where we would have been right now with a, a Hillary Clinton or uh, or even like a Bernie Sanders, <laughs> a Bernie Sanders president, the the pure capitalist who uh, loves socialism because socialism will just make him at the top even ever the more richer. Still, there's plenty to unpack and learn from the latest round of unsettling news from the Middle East. One reason for the war talk is that Iran is threatening to stop complying with the Iran nuclear deal, the agreement negotiated by Obama. Critics were apoplectic when Donald Trump withdrew from the deal. Iran's announcement last week got them worked up all over again. They had convinced themselves that it was either Iran deal or war. Now they just assume there will be war. So either the Iran deal, right, where they're able to still able to build nuclear weapons, they're still able to enrich uranium. There are many military sites that the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, could not go in and inspect, and that uh, there's a sunset provision in like seven to ten years where they could just start fully enriching uranium again. So, yeah, and then we're sending them billions of dollars in unmarked cash to go and terrorize the Levant. Ah, no thanks. Thank you, but no thank you. Or it's just war. So it's this terrible Iran deal or war, and there's nothing in between. And it's just we're crazy and we're frenzied, and we got to bring all these pundits on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News about how much they hate Trump, they hate Trump, they hate Trump, and oh, he's crazy at any moment. At any moment, he's going to hit a button, and, and, he's, and uh, nuclear missiles are going to explode all over the world, and we're all going to die, and then it's really going to be global warming. So, uh, yeah. Now, people don't get that Trump is a strategic thinker to him. Uh, I don't want to say to him it's a game of chess, but he plays it like a game of chess. It's strategy. It's negotiations. It's taking some risks, yes. But if you don't take some risks, you're not going to have any progress if we always keep it safe, just just like they did for decades with the Soviet Union with the idea of de- detente. Let's just, you know, let's just keep it, keep the status quo. Let's not upset the USSR too much. Reagan comes in, and one of his chief goals 
unstated at the time. He did not state it at the time, but it did come out later that one of his chief goals was to take down the Soviet Union. And they did it. So look, uh, but at the same time, you also have to care about freedom. You also have to care about certain things that a lot of people on the left really don't care about. They care about this faux idea of equality with this horrific, unbelievably evil Equality Act. If you are not familiar with the Equality Act, and especially if you live in the United States of America, you need to look up House Resolution 5 Equality Act, which will essentially force, from what it looks like and from what I'm seeing in the text, if you drill it down, it will essentially force churches to allow uh, men to go into women's restrooms. The Equality Act is anti-woman, it is anti-girl, and it is pro, let's just say it is pro those types of people. It is pro the sickos of the world. If a boy wants to be able to go into a girl's locker room at school, this Equality Act, all he has to do is say, I'm a woman, and he can go in. Look it up. Look it up. It's, uh, I realize this is a midi snooze brief, so i got to be careful, but uh, th- that is a serious, serious threat to our free republic. Serious threat to our First Amendment rights. Just like Roe v. Wade has been in a serious threat, and a real threat, that has taken the lives of tens of millions of unborn children and some born children. I mean, right now they're just trying to get a born-alive bill passed. If a baby's born alive, you won't kill it. They're having a hard time getting that passed. How, tell me this, how do you have a hard time getting an act passed where there's uh, the baby's laying on the operation table and it's alive, and you don't think that we should keep it alive? <laughs> you think we should be able to kill it? Unbelievable. So I'm very happy what's going on with Georgia and Alabama. That, that's all I'll say on that. A lot of crazy stuff going on here in the U.S., but some good stuff, too. Some crazy stuff and some good stuff all at the same time. So, In their anger, they forgot that their support for the Iran deal was largely based on myths. Iran never stopped its destabilizing activity in the region after signing the agreement. The deal never improved prospects for better relations between Washington and Tehran. Still, some expressed concern over new reports of a muscular U.S. military deployment to the region which was provoked by intelligence of an impending Iranian covert action. Those concerns made no sense. The U.S. move was intended to preempt escalation, not prompt it. See that? Preempt escalation, not prompt it. We're not going to sit on our hands over here and wait for some uh, U.S. forces or some other group to get attacked in the Middle East, okay, and then we'll send the aircraft carriers, then we'll send the B-52s, then we'll send the Marines, Urah, right? Thank you, Marines. Thank you for your service. And uh, not just Marines, but anybody else. God bless all of you uh, servicemen and women. You are the, the true heroes of our country. Had to get that in there. Because I don't think I've really honored the servicemen and women in the 14 episodes that we've done now. Uh, so, uh, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Right, so we're, we're not going to do that. We're, see, what we're going to do is peace through strength, right? If we get intelligence, 
formidable, viable intelligence that Iran is a, is potentially going to start striking our people or our assets, we are going to flex our biceps and we're going to show them, uh, I don't think this is a very good idea. Right? That's not provoking. It's trying to get them to calm down. It's trying to get them to pull back and to think twice. Is the damage worth it? Especially when your economy is in the tank. You cannot afford a war with us. From the U.S. perspective, the campaign to isolate and pressure the Iranian regime seems by and large to be working. Tehran is increasingly short on cash, faces serious internal dissent, we'll get to that in a second, and has little international support. From Tehran's perspective, this is an inopportune time for a showdown with Washington. They would rather wait Trump out and hope to get a more pliant next president. Boy, would they. Still, I believe all the Democratic candidates have said they will, um, pretty much all at least, they'll redo the Iran nuclear deal because they just, we just, we got to support our terrorist friends in the Middle East. We just have to. Still, it does serve their interest um, to stir the pot of troubles, hoping to fuel a backlash against Trump that might help oust him from office. But they can't press too hard. Unseating Trump isn't worth provoking a war with the United States. What Tehran doesn't get is that, if anything, Americans are likely to appreciate Trump being tougher on Iran. Americans know Trump didn't start these troubles. Tehran did. So, again, I, I mean, I basically agree with the optimistic nature of this article. I mean, of course, uh, a, a, you know, a war with them is always possible, <clears throat> but it's highly, highly unlikely, given so many factors that we've already discussed. They're just, Tehran is hurting. Tehran is hurting bad. Uh, a Saudi columnist came out and said it's time to act against Iran and its militias. I know that he certainly has uh, <laughs> a motivation for that. He'd, uh, a Saudi col- columnist would uh, love to see the U.S. Uh, take care of their chief rival for hegemony in the Middle East, um, Iran. So uh, I'm not going to go into that, but that's, uh, that's I think, Saudi Arabia's position. Uh, they'd, love, they'd love to see that. Also, Trump says that he would absolutely would send 120,000 troops to the Middle East in response to Iranian aggression uh, when asked about that. There was this big report in the Times Oh, that that there was uh, the New York Times, that there was this plan to deploy tens of thousands of troops and all this stuff. And I, <laughs> I love what when Trump was asked about it, he said, I think it's fake news. OK, would I do that? Absolutely. So look, there's one. He's saying, look, this is fake news. There's not a plan for this. But would I do it? Iran be on the alert? Absolutely. But we have not planned for that. Hopefully we don't have to plan for that. And if we did that, we'd send a hell of a lot more troops than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, ah, uh, uh, enjoy it. Enjoy the Trump presidency while it lasts, because it won't be around forever. 
Iran's defense minister vows to defeat the U.S., Israel, if attacked. He said, we will defeat the American Zionist front, Minister of Defense Amir Hatami said, according to the Islamic Republic News Agency, which is it's very interesting that, you know, you go and you actually go to the IRNA's uh, website and just read all the, the propaganda. It's actually uh, rather uh, enlightening. But uh, a man that I'm going to get to who's, who's in the know pretty big time with the IRGC, with Iran, he basically says that they believe their own fake news, that they have such hubris. They actually believe. They actually, and this is what he was saying. This is a guy who has harbored dissidents, very high up dissidents from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps that they actually really believe all of their own fake news, that, that the hubris is just uh, off the scales, off the charts, really is. He said, the U.S., though intensified military rivalries, increased military presence and intervention, Severe economic sanctions and the formation of military-political alliances and military threats, like last decade, seeks instability in the Persian Gulf and the Middle East, not peace and security. So, they're, they're, I'm sorry, that wasn't what the uh, defense minister said. That was just quoting the uh, state-controlled uh, news agency. So, look, they're, they're going to be putting out uh, things such as, such as this. Uh, so we'll just see. Another, uh, an Iranian general also claimed that U.S. war against Iran is impossible. U.S. war against Iran is impossible. This is uh, The Guardian, May 16th, uh, not May 16th, I'm sorry, May 12th. The deployment of a U.S. aircraft carrier to Iran's regional waters is nothing but psychological warfare and part of a plan to intimidate Tehran. The head of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, General Hossein Salamai, has told parliamentarians in a closed-door session. Um, and basically just says it, it's, you know, this is impossible. Uh, which, claiming Washington lacked Washington lacked the necessary military strength. I wonder, does he really believe that? <laughs> I mean, because, uh, again, according to um, Kenneth R. Timmerman, they actually believe their own fake news. They actually believe all the things that they come out in public and say. And this is from high-up defectors that he's gotten this information. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, however, there was a, an excellent, there's a show called Beyond the Matrix on Israel News Talk Radio. And there was a gentleman on it named Kenneth R. Timmerman. He's a veteran, uh, a Ron Watcher, New York Times bestselling author and investigative journalist. Uh, he came on to discuss the uh, all the developments in the Middle East. And something that he noted, basically, was how pivotal the intelligence was that a high-ranking Iran Revolutionary Guards intelligence officer brought with him. So, again, 
uh, about half an hour ago. We've been talking about this so long. I asked the question, if there was one person from Iran that you would want to defect, who would it be? Ayatollah Khomeini, right? <laughs> or whatever. Um, uh, an, uh, an Iranian general, an IRGC general. Who would you want to defect? I tell you who I'd want to defect. I would want the chief intelligence officer of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps to defect. And that's exactly what happened. And not only this, it says here, the defector brought a veritable trove of information on Iran's nuclear program, support for proxies in Lebanon, Iraq, and Yemen, threatening U.S. allies and assets in the Gulf region. Uh, that threatened Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, as well as Israel and Jordan. Timmerman believes the defector information was credible enough for the administration to dispatch the powerful USS Lincoln Carrier Task Force uh, steaming from the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal to enter the Arabian Sea, confronting IRGC's Navy, shore-based missile threats, uh, all the different things that Pen the Pentagon deployed like we uh, discussed earlier in the show. Timmerman warns that unlike the 1987-1988 tanker war during the Reagan era, that the U.S. Navy SEALs and Special Ops won with Iran, the U.S. Fifth Fleet and the USS Abraham Lincoln Battle Group now face a serious short-based missile threat developed by Iran and China that might have the effects of keeping U.S. naval assets offshore of the maritime choke point of the Straits of Hormuz that controls the flow of Gulf region oil production to the world energy markets. So, uh, obviously, you can do some damage. If you stop the flow of oil and energy uh, across the world, you, you can definitely do a bit of, of damage to the world economy. And who knows, Iran just might be crazy enough to do that. Timmerman noted that Iran has used this strategy in Yemen via the Houthi Shiite rebels to launch missiles to damage Saudi oil pipelines to the Red Sea. So, uh, look, it... Uh, we have some unbelievably valuable intelligence on Iran, on their proxies. I mean, we could do some serious damage. This was an unbelievable defection. This was a gift from God. It's not to be understated. When the head of intelligence of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps defects, so we'll see what comes of it, um, but I'd certainly, most certainly going to help them in this, this current standoff because they're going to have all kinds of information that they would not have had otherwise. So, okay, we've spent 50 minutes talking about this, so let's wrap up a bit, right? What is, what is the gist of this whole deal with Iran? And no, I'm not going to—this is going to be a longer show. I've got some other stuff I need to get to. Hopefully we can keep it at an hour and a half. I'll go hour 45 if I have to. Um, so if you guys just want to hear about Iran, then you can end it off in a few minutes, and that's great. But uh, this is a once-a-week show, and I just, there's just never, <laughs> just never enough time to talk about everything that I feel the need to talk about. And I feel like every week, even when I go an hour and a half, 
uh, I just stuff is left on the table. Uh, just a lot of stuff that that I don't get to. I will have to say I'm pretty excited because I'm actually have some kind. I have an online system now for all of my news articles, and I'm not having to print everything out and sort everything out, which is why you're not hearing paper rustling in the background anymore, or or anything like that. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that, and it appears to be actually going uh, going pretty well. So uh, we'll see how it how it continues to go. But uh, we are going to talk about Israel. We are going to talk about Rashida Tlaib. Uh, so if you'll give me a few more minutes on Iran, then we will we will get to that. Okay. So so what's the gist of all this right now? So uh, here's here's kind of the basic summary, right? And uh, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb, and I'm going to make a prediction about this whole thing. So I'm a, I'm a news reporter, and I'm a news analyst, so um, predictions are, are part of the gig, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to be wrong. I'm happy to be wrong, too. That's fine, but I'm going to make a prediction based off of the information that we have before us. But let's recap, then let's make a prediction. All right, so first off, we received intelligence that Iran was planning attacks on U.S. military personnel in the Middle East with Pompeo saying that Iran-backed militias moved rockets to American bases in Iraq, right? So that's, that's number one, and now we know that <laughs> we, we, not just, we didn't just get some intelligence, we got the intelligence. Number two, we send a whole bunch of, look at us, if you screw with us, you're going to get lots of bombs and missiles headed your way. Whole bunch of stuff. Thus, you got B-52s, you got F-35s, you got Patriot uh, missile defense systems, you got aircraft carriers that that go at um, classified speeds <laughs> and turn on a dime. So you're getting you're getting a display of military might. And one thing you've got to understand is that there's one language that the thugs in the Middle East understand. There's one language, one language they speak only: strength power. Bowing down before them, like Obama did to the Saudi king, going on an apology tour and apologizing for America in this like ob- disgustingly obsequious uh, manner that Obama did in his attempted reset with Islamic nations where he apparently just doesn't understand Islam at all. Strength. And that's what that's what they did. And again, it was to preempt, um, to stop the escalation ahead of time. It was not to raise escalation. It was not to bring escalation. It was to stop it. Number three, Iran's economy is tanking, tanking, as we thoroughly discussed. A terrible economy with more sanctions from the U.S. now. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, from the U.S. and now in the in the metals industry, not just oil, um, as well as no more waivers for companies doing business with Iran is just going to make matters much, much, much worse. Those charts that I talked about a minute minute ago, they're just gonna keep going down. Their exports now. I mean, I can't wait to see a chart from June. Their exports are gonna be 50 percent lower now. I mean, it's. Oh, I don't know that. I'm just that's that's an exaggeration. But we're just going to see it continue to plummet. We've got the strength. We've got the leverage. And thank God we have a president that's willing to use it. The Saudis want to go in and kick some tail, but neither Iran nor the U.S. 
uh, I said likely. Uh, I know the U.S. isn't, but uh, Iran likely, because um, you never know when they could just be suicidal. Neither of them, I believe, are ultimately interested in a war. Israel can't send a fusillade of missiles 800 miles, you know, to, to Iraq to take out proxies and so forth. So, I mean, the best bet may be to utilize your allies, hone in on the intelligence that we have, and basically threaten and go after the leadership itself. That was a, that was a policy paper I, I didn't really get to from the Washington Institute, but, uh, but uh, their, their solutions were, uh, I think, on some level, continue doing what they're doing, target the leadership. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, if necessary, Trump will send well over 100,000 troops, and the Ayatollahs uh, say they, they'll crush us. But, you know, they always say that, right? Um, a country that is already financially being decimated does not want a war with the United States of America, to not repeat myself uh, over and over. Actually, it was Senator Tom Cotton came out and said, we defeat Iran in two strikes, and he might be overdoing it. It might just take one. The 20 tr- you got the $20 trillion economy of the United States and the $435 billion economy of Iran. That They, they just, you can't touch this, right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to be um, doing any MC Hammer, at least not, uh, not on the recording. Maybe once this is done, you never know. So uh, that's, that is ultimately it. And the game has changed now that we have this IRGC head of intelligence defector. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Um, so what's my prediction? What's my prediction? It is ultimately we are not going to go to war with Iran. It's possible we could have a little skirmish here and there, but I seriously, seriously doubt we're going to be in a full-scale, full-scale war with Iran. But what about John Bolton, the national security advisor? He's a warmonger. He's crazy. He's, you know, I actually kind of like the, the John Bolton-Donald Trump team, Mike Pompeo. I, I think that they are, they, are quite the, they are quite the team because I, I think Trump is more of the uh, libertarian type in that sense that he is very skittish about going to war, uh, but Bolton can push back. Uh, it's like, look, we need to do this. Trump's like, ah, but do we really need to do that? And I think Trump is smart enough to work through it all to know if it's really worth it to go to war or not. So I agree. When, when John Bolton uh, became national security advisor, I mean, I liked it, trust me, <laughs> a lot more than H.R. McMasters, who is an enemy of Trump, who for a some reason I just will never understand Trump took John McCain's advice to select H.R. McMaster's when McCain is just was an enemy of Trump. Oh, it's uh, truly, truly amazing. Of course, Michael Flynn should have been in there the the entire time, but but that's a that's a whole other issue. So. We're not going to go to war with Iran, is my prediction. Uh, Iran is going to continue to get its rear kicked so severely uh, by these Trumpian sanctions that one of two things will happen. They'll be forced to come to the table to renegotiate the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, or things will get so bad, we'll see regime change. This is possible, guys. Regime change is impossible. And don't think for a second it's not. It has happened throughout history many, 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 many times. It happened with the um, 
the Ayatollahs. And it can, they, they threw off the Shah. And now someone can throw them off, right, if things get bad enough. And even though Trump doesn't state it, I think that ultimately he could be all about regime change. I could be wrong, but I don't see the Ayatollahs bankrupting their country via a major confrontation with the U.S. that would drain them more severely than the sanctions already have. So that's all I'm going to say on Iran for now. Uh, I will be on this and we'll try to post relevant updates on Twitter. So follow me there at Mideast Briefing. All right. You guys don't know this, but I just took an eight-minute, much-needed break after an hour of talking about <laughs> about Iran. Um, that's, the, that's the beauty of uh, podcasting, isn't it? Just pause and restart once your voice has a bit of a break and you are ready to go again. And I am excited to talk about one of my favorite subjects right now, and that is, of course, all of the wonderful things going on in Israel, the Jewish state that came into existence almost 2,000 years after not being a nation. Miraculous. Has that ever happened in history, anywhere else? Uh, truly, truly remarkable. Truly a uh, truly a, a gift from God. And just a little preview, if you remember episode 7, uh, Thani Abu Hamid, who is a good friend of mine in Lebanon. Uh, he and I, are. Uh, I did an interview with him about just life on the ground in Lebanon and some politics and uh, some missionary work and so forth. Had a great interview. I uh, highly recommend you listening to episode seven if you have not. But he and I are going to be doing another episode that is going to actually air the week that I am on vacation. So I'm going to be gone uh, for about 10 days in June. I'm actually going to be floating somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. And, uh, and so for that Friday, while I'm gone, I obviously won't be able to do a show. So Thani and I are going to pre-record a show about, uh, and I hope you guys don't mind, but it's, it, the whole show is going to be about the 1948 restoration of the Jewish people back to the land of Israel and what the Bible has to say about that. And look, even if you're not a believer that is uh, listening right now, uh, for one, I, I invite you to become one by uh, putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I, I would encourage you to still listen anyway, because uh, if you th if you think that the the Bible, or if you, you may or may not, uh, but if you do think that the Bible is kind of ancillary to what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, I, you would be, I would kindly say you would be mistaken. <laughs> I remember, uh, I think it was uh, Michael Oren, and uh, he was the uh, Israeli ambassador to the U.S. from uh, like 2009 to 2013, I believe. And I don't. I hope I'm not getting it mixed up with uh, with anyone. But uh, he wrote a book called Ally, and he said that he would literally. I mean, he would literally go into a congressman's office here in the U.S., and the congressman would have a Bible on his desk, and the and he would say, 
Ambassador, this book tells me I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So you just tell me what you need. <laughs> I mean, you could imagine. <laughs> You're the ambassador um, of Israel. Wow. That given the history and the suffering that your people have gone through more than any other people in history that I'm aware of, and then to have that kind of kindness extended towards you. So uh, anyway, uh, that's just a small sampling to just let you know that the Bible has had an unbelievable effect on the Middle East, and especially from evangelical Christians who, like myself, who believe that the Bible says that uh, the Jewish people are God's chosen people and that he wanted to bring them back to the land, uh, that's, uh, it's very, very significant and very much affects the politics of it. Now, let me be clear that you can make a, a case for, uh, and it's not very difficult, you can make a case for Jewish hegemony in Palestine, or what was called and renamed Palestine by the Romans, uh, circa 130 A.D., you could make a case for them uh, having ownership of that land strictly from a, a legal basis, an international law legal basis. You don't need uh, the Bible at all, actually, to make that case and to make a strong case. I mean, good thing, because the Bible, uh, the Bible is not necessarily... Uh, uh, valid, <laughs> you know, at the Hague, right, in, in Holland there. So uh, uh, so that being said, um, uh, look for that. It's going to be uh, whenever the, the Friday, the first Friday um, after, uh, or I guess June 10th, I believe, uh, would be the, the episode. So look for that, and of course, listen to our episode with Fanny. Um, it, it's very enlightening and very interesting. If you're listening to this broadcast, you care about the Middle East, and Lebanon is is right next door to Israel. It's very important, has a very important history. Um, it's not just a side character. Hezbollah is very active uh, in that area. Well, we don't talk about terrorist proxies and stuff in that interview, uh, but uh, but it, it's very important to to the whole region, so definitely check that out. So, but uh, we, we have some stuff to celebrate this week, okay, that I feel like that we needed to get to. What do we need to celebrate this week? Well, pop quiz. What happened on May 14th, 2018? What happened? Da, 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 da. You know what happened. Good job. Excellent answer. The United States did what Congress told it to do on an overwhelming bipartisan majority, signed into law by William Jefferson Clinton himself, commanding that the United States move its embassy from Tel Aviv, I believe believe Tel Aviv was the very first city in uh, in Israel. Mr. Producer, was Tel Aviv uh, the very first city in the newly formed state? Oh, wait, I'm the producer. <laughs> There's no Mr. Producer yet. I've got one coming, though, actually, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I believe it was. But either way, it doesn't matter. 
The U.S. Embassy was officially moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I remember literally watching it live at my kitchen table with my laptop open, crying. <laughs> I mean, I literally had tears down my eyes as Jared Kushner, <laughs> right? Not the most like inspirational speaker in the world. We're actually going to hear from Kushner in a second because I think we are getting a better, 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 better idea what the deal of the century is going to be. And I'm so excited. I'm actually excited about the deal of the century. I think it's going to be a good one. But I digress. I'm not going to leak too much. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I remember literally sitting at my kitchen table, watching on my laptop, crying as Jared Kushner spoke, right? <laughs> it wasn't his dynamic uh, speaking. It was, it was what was happening. It was a history that was being made. It was the United States being used by God to lead the way for other nations to eventually follow and recognize in the reality that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel. It's always been the capital of Israel, and it always will be the capital of Israel. And again, all he, all Trump did was recognize reality and move the embassy, and he called the bluff. Uh, look, I even knew this. I, you don't have to be, you know, um, head of the CIA to know that it's going to be fine if you move the embassy. It's not going to start World War III. And if it does, doesn't that kind of tell you something about the people that you're negotiating with, right? Doesn't does that not tell you a little something <laughs> about about the entities? If uh, if you simply moving your embassy is gonna uh, result in another intifada, yeah, pray for all of Israel. But the reality is that didn't happen, and and actually, the full now. Uh, you may not have been aware of this, but it, it wasn't just that the embassy needed to be moved, right? But a chief of mission residence needed to be established. And that's what happened. So May 14th, 2019, three days ago as of this broadcast, was the one-year anniversary of the embassy being moved to Jerusalem. And a chief of mission residence, that would be the the residence of the U.S. ambassador to Israel, a man that I just think the world of, David Friedman, uh, that is completed. So basically the full act, the full Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 is now officially completed. The embassy is there, no longer in Tel Aviv. The chief of mission residence is there, no longer in Tel Aviv. And... uh, Friedman wrote uh, a short piece in Israel Today, Israel Hayom, um, reflecting a bit. And he, and he said a, f- a few things in here that I found very interesting and wanted to convey uh, to you guys. And I think sometimes it's just good to hear from our statesmen. Just good to hear directly from our statesmen and for what they have to say. And here's what he said. On May 14th, 2018... The United States finally opened its embassy in Israel's eternal capital, Jerusalem. In making the courageous decision to take this historic step, President Donald Trump not only fulfilled a 23-year-old mandate from the United States Congress, but he also recognized a 3,000-year-old truth that Israel's enemies have long sought to erase. America has been fascinated by Jerusalem since the early days of our republic. And guys, speaking of Michael Oren, if I can recommend a book. If, you, if you're interested in America and you're interested in the Middle East, 
Michael Oren wrote a fascinating history called Power, Faith, and Fantasy. America's role in, in the Middle East basically from like the 1770s to like 2006 when the book was, when the book was finished. Fascinating. Now, you, now, trust me, you got to be interested in the topic, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not a James Patterson thriller, okay? But it is extremely well-written, extremely well-researched. Oren is a colossal intellect um, and a colossal researcher. I'm, I'm looking forward to, I will be reading his book, Six Days of War, which I have not yet, but I will be reading it eventually. Um, it, is the, it is the definitive Definitive work on the on the 1967 Six Day War, um, but a- anyway, so so we have been we have been fina- fascinated by Jerusalem. Why? Because despite what some people uh, just go in a frenzy and go in a tizzy when you say this, America was founded on Judeo Christian principles. No, I know some of the founders were deists. I get it, but you know what? A lot of them were Christians too. Uh, so no, they weren't all deists. There, 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 there was a mix. You got deists, you got theists, you got Christians. Uh, you, you, you had a mixed bag. But um, America has been fascinated from the beginning. Abraham Lincoln even said uh, that he, uh, before his death, he wanted to visit Jerusalem. Uh, in 1844, Warder Cresson, the first consul general, announced after his appointment by the Secretary of State that the United States was thereby extending its protection to the Jews of Jerusalem. How about that? Did you know that? In 1844, the U.S. (laughs) extended? This was over 100 years before there was a Jewish state. The U.S. extended its protection over the Jews in Jerusalem? The first permanent consular presence opened just inside the Jaffa Gate in 1857. Did y'all know we had a diplomatic presence in the 1850s? Unbelievable. And diplomatic presence has remained constant in and around the old city ever since. And like I said, Abraham Lincoln uh, wanted to visit Jerusalem. Uh, Ulysses Grant and Mark Twain both visited Jerusalem in the mid-19th century and wrote extensively about their experiences. And trust me, Twain was not <laughs> was not impressed. If you read what Twain says about it, oh, and by the way, if you want a beautiful uh, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna start getting paid for these endorsements. Someone needs to uh, uh, step up. But uh, um, there's a book called "Behold Israel" that a a lady actually in my Sunday school class recommended, and I I couldn't help myself. I literally took out my phone right then in Sunday school and uh, and bought the book. And it is just marvelous, marvelous. What they do is they document. They, they find old photographs from like the 1940s and earlier. They find all these old photographs around Israel. And then they go and, and they went on a tour throughout Israel attempting to find the exact spot that those pictures were taken. And so you basically have the picture from like 1930, then you have the picture from like 2017. And what it does is it, did I say behold Israel? I, I should have said uh, Israel rising. Um, but uh, we're going to get to behold Israel in, in a second, Amir Sarfati's ministry. Uh, we're going to hear from him on some uh, interesting deal of the century stuff. But this, I mean, it just shows you 
picture after picture after picture, a hundred years before to now, what uh, the the Jewish state has done with this really desolate area. Um, and so, if you want like solid documentation on that, uh, Israel Rising is a just it's a phenomenal phenomenal book for that. Um, it's just book recommendation day here on Midi Snooze Brief. The old city of Jerusalem remained that way, which is a poor, inhospitable, and undeveloped. Uh, Jerusalem remained that way well into the 20th century. Whether under the rule of the Ottoman Empire until 1917, the British Mandate until 1948, or the Kingdom of Jordan until 1967, don't forget that the Kingdom of Jordan illegally occupied the West Bank from 1948 to 1967. Oh, we'll get to that in a second because one of our favorite new congresswomen decided she would just completely create a fantasy world and label it history. You probably know what I'm talking about. In 1967, Jerusalem was reunified as a single city under Israeli rule. Almost immediately, Jerusalem began to bloom, to flourish, and to become, for the first time in its history, a free city open to the worshipers of all three Abrahamic faiths. Many in the United States, States took notice, and in 1995, Congress, by overwhelming majority votes, passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act. Presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama all found reasons to avoid the implementation of this law. All in all, more than 40, yes, 40, presidential waivers were signed to delay the move of the embassy. And that's one thing that, if you're not familiar, the Jerusalem Embassy Act allowed for is that every six months, the uh, U.S. president could sign a waiver basically kicking the can down the road Um, and not actually moving the embassy. And that's what Clinton, that's what Bush, that's what Obama did. You got to wonder, do they feel a little silly right now? (laughs) You got to wonder on some level, do they feel a little silly all of that, I mean, Obama has to feel really silly with that magic wand comment, but you never know. Um, uh, but, I mean, when they see how it's actually been so great to move the embassy and there wasn't World War III, uh, I don't know, you, you just, you, you tend to wonder. So every six months, they sign these waivers, uh, culminating in like 40 presidential waivers. Trump comes in, I think he signed one. <laughs> Right? I think you sound like one waiver. Um, Trump recognized the truth that Jerusalem was in, is, and always will be the capital of Israel. He saw the dishonest and shameful efforts of UNESCO and the United Nations Security Council to deny Israel's biblical, historical, and practical connection to Jerusalem. Oh, another book recommendation about all of that. Jay Sekulow's new book, Jerusalem. Fantastic legal and historical and biblical defense of the the nation of Israel. And I, I think that's really how you should, how I would defend the state of Israel and how I do defend it is that you start with the legal evidence and you let the historic evidence complement the legal and then you let the biblical evidence complement the historical. I think that's the, the best way when you're talking to, uh, at least when you're talking to secular audiences, um, if you're talking to a Christian audience, you, uh, I guess you would start with the biblical 
but uh, but all in all, it, it's a very, very a rock-solid case, and that is going to be one of my supplemental broadcasts when I need to be gone for a week and I can't bring you the news. Uh, that will be one of the supplementary shows that I will be bringing you because it's fascinating. It's actually relatively simple, and people need to know it. If you love Israel like I do, you need to know it. And he refused to pursue a foreign policy based upon anything short of the truth. President Trump, like other Republican and Democratic candidates before him, had promised during his campaign to move the embassy. Unlike his predecessors, Trump kept his promise. So that's all I'm going to say from that, but it's great to hear from the ambassador to Israel on the embassy move one year afterwards, and it's good to see that all the provisions of the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 have been fully enacted. More good news, right? Location found in Golan Heights for town to be named after Trump. This is from the Jerusalem Post, May 13th. He's already got a train station named after him in Jerusalem. Look, look, when you do what's right, you get honored. And this is what's happening with Trump. The government has already found a location for the establishment of a new community in the Golan Heights that will be named after U.S. President Donald Trump, Netanyahu said at the outset of Sunday's weekly cabinet meeting. The prime minister, who said last month that a community in the Golan Heights would be named after Trump as a sign of appreciation for his decision to recognize Israel's sovereignty over, over the strategic heights, said that he will bring the name to the cabinet for its approval when the community is established. So there are currently 33 towns and villages in the Golan, with the last one, a Nimrod, established in 1999. That's kind of a weird name. <laughs> Why would you name it after Nimrod? I don't know. Um, of the 33, I mean, that's an insult over here to call someone a Nimrod. Uh, of the 33 communities, all but four were established by labor, labor governments from 1967, when Israel took over the area, until 1977, when Likud first came to power. According to CBS figures, there were 50,000 residents in the Golan in 2017, of which some 23,000 were Jews and 27,000 were non-Jews. We got a one-state solution coming, guys. See what I'm talking about. Netanyahu also pointed out that this week marks a year since the U.S. moved its embassy to Jerusalem and that it has now also moved the official residence of the ambassador to the city as well. Netanyahu said, quote, We very much appreciate this historic decision by President Trump, just as we greatly appreciate his historic decision to recognize Israeli sovereignty of the Golan Heights. So that's all I'm going to say on that, but that is... Look, all of this is extremely important to the survival of the state of Israel. Israel cannot lose the Golan. It can never give the land back, give the land back to the aggressors that used it to launch a war against it in 1967. That would be beyond idiotic. Israel will never do that, and the Trump administration would never promote that. Obviously, they've, they're actually promoting quite the opposite, thank God. Okay, so now I'm going to get to a little bit of audio, finally, a minute and 23 seconds into the broadcast. I'm going to get into a, a little audio. This was a interview between Robert Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and 
Jared Kushner. So basically, uh, the question Satloff asked is, what makes the Israel-Palestinian crisis rise to the level of being one of the top priorities in the region? Um, He said a few things before that, but what I'm after, I'm after information about the deal. What information can I extract from the team right before the deal is released? So let's listen. Uh, this, we're going to listen for a few minutes to this fascinating uh, interview between Kushner and Satloff, and then we will uh, then we'll recap. Uh, with regards to this issue, again, we see this as um, you know Israel is a very special country. Uh, it's the only democracy in the region. Uh, it's America's strongest ally. They're a great military partner. Uh, we do a lot of business with them in a lot of ways, and so. Uh, Israel's security is something that's very important to this country. It's something that's very important to the president, and it's something that uh, we want to see. Uh, we want to see that resolved. And I do think that uh, a lot of what we'll do here, in order for Israel to be secure long term, uh, they need uh, to resolve this issue. I think it's very important. You have to make compromises in order to do that. Uh, I don't think anyone will question uh, if we do ask Israel to make compromises in our proposal that we're going to ask them to do things that. Uh, would put them at risk security-wise. I don't think uh, the president would take, uh, he would not take decisions himself that he would think would put America and and the people who he represents at risk, and he wouldn't expect another leader to do that. But he also thinks that if you're able to help the Palestinian people have dignity and have opportunity and create a new paradigm and break this cycle, um, he thinks that that's uh, within uh, the whole region's interest and also in America's interest. We spend a lot of money uh, in that region, our, our military cost is there. There's a lot of threat uh, that comes from that region, and the more that we can lead towards stabilization, I think that's a very important thing. And Syria is a very important uh, issue as well, and I think that that's something we spend time uh, working on. And I know that uh, Secretary Pompeo has been working hard to try to find uh, what the correct outcome is there, and that's another one of the top priorities. All right. So let, let me ask you the the tactical why, which is. <clears throat> Why do you think the circumstances are right for a U.S. peace plan now? Administration officials have said from time to time that the plan wouldn't be presented until the time was right. Assuming that, as has been reported, that June 2019 is the time, give or take, what makes that the right time? Sure. So when I got in, people told me, you know, you're crazy to work on this, it's not the right time, this is impossible, it will never happen. So I don't think there's ever a perfect time to do this. But uh, I do think what we've been able to do over the last couple of years is, uh, is put ourselves in a position where uh, we do feel like now is a good time to put something out there. I think that uh, when we made the decision uh, to recognize Jerusalem, the president asked, you know, will this make your job easier or harder? And, and the answer I gave him was, I think short term it's probably harder because people will you know, be more reactive and emotional. They're not used to, um, you know, a president that a, is keeping his word, taking tough decisions, and and doing what he thinks is right in that regard. And so I said, you know, this is going to be a different thing. I said, but long term, I think it helps because what we need to start doing is just recognizing truths. And I think that when we recognize Jerusalem, yes. uh, that is a truth. You know, uh, Jerusalem is the capital of of Israel, and and um, and that would be part of any final agreement anyway. And I think. Amen. And I think that that was a very important component. Uh, the same thing with recognizing the Golan Heights. I mean, the Israel's had Golan for 52 years. It's been relatively peaceful since they've had it. Uh, I mean, Syria is kind of a mess right now. I mean, you've got a leader that's committed, 
you know, mass genocide and, and the territories all disputed and broken up. So I don't think there's really any question that the Golan, when things are resolved, uh, that, that it should be part of Israel. And so we recognize that too. And I think that we're in a position now, uh, uh, obviously Prime Minister Netanyahu just uh, won, a, uh, I think, a very uh, good election. He'll build, a, hopefully, a strong coalition. And we'll work with him to see what we can do. And, and I do think that in the Arab world, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of impatience, too, with the Palestinian issue. I mean, the, this is the important. is kind of running dry uh, a little bit with regards to, um, you know, people have been funding this thing for a long time. They've gotten more aid than uh, any, uh, any group of people in history. And what we have to show for it is really not much at this point, unfortunately. It's, it's you know, there are some people who've done very well, and maybe those people like the situation where the aid's coming in and it's enriching, you know, a few at the top, but it hasn't trickled down to the people. And, and maybe that's been a disincentive for people to actually want to solve the issues. So yeah, so I think there was a lot of very valuable information in that kind of slice of the interview. I'll have a link to the full interview if you want to watch. It's a great interview up at MideastNewsBrief.com. Um, but a few details that um, I think are extremely important that we are, I think you can say pretty much 100% we're going to see in the deal. Number one, Israel will have to make compromises in some respect, but will not compromise their security. I believe them when they say that. So we'll see what that entails. Number two, Jerusalem is Israel's capital. It's not going to be divided and given to a Palestinian state. Number three, Golan Heights belongs to Israel. Obviously, they, there's no way Trump would have recognized the sovereignty of Israel over the Golan if that wasn't part of the deal. Number four, this is very, very important. I, 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 this was maybe the most important um, section out of that, that small clip that I played. is what was at the very end. The cause is running dry in the Arab world. They have spent untold amounts of money and really at this point have nothing to show for it. And this is going to make Arabs more likely to embrace it. They're tired of it. It's getting old. They are a, uh, the Palestinians are a special class of people, special treatment, their own special uh, definition of what a refugee is going to like four generations. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. They have, they've basically been given victim status for a long time, right? Uh, all the while, their leadership is, is a terrorist regime, and not just in Gaza, but also in the Palestinian Authority, so uh, in, in the West Bank. So, uh, look, th this has been going on for like 100 years. <laughs> Right. So uh, the, the Arabs are like, and look, and they and they know, they know, especially the Saudis know the blown opportunities that uh, Arafat and um, Abbas have 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 made just blown opportunities. And they likely know that it is on purpose, that it is to their advantage, like Kushner was saying, it is to their advantage to keep the conflict going, to keep the money coming in to keep the victim status, to, to be able to just continue uh, to, to bring resolutions before The Hague, for the International Criminal Court, uh, bring resolutions before the, the Jew-hating UN Security Council. It feeds the narrative. And look, ultimately, we know this. We know 
the Palestinians do not want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution with a, without a single Jew in it. Okay, so, and I think the Trump administration understands that, all right? Not to mention the fact that the Arabs have a much bigger problem than uh, the, the Palestinian leadership uh, screaming like crybabies about Israel all day, every day. And that is Iran, the genocidal, maniacal regime. So I, I think we got some pretty important information from that. Now, I want to get to, uh, there's a guy that I follow on YouTube named uh, Amir Sarfati. He is a minister, but he also does some Middle East news updates. Uh, his ministry is called Behold Israel. And uh, he basically has said, he has basically said that uh, some information about the deal of, cent- of the century has leaked. Now I'm I'm bringing this up. He's not. This isn't just some random guy. He recently just got back from a trip meeting with members of Congress. So the the guy definitely has some ends in the political world. But I just wanted to play a short clip, couple minutes, and see if you can pick up some more details about the deal of the century. The 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 uh, resolve that the American president will eventually cause the Iranians to not uh, want to do anything uh, over there. Two more things that I want to mention. Um, the, Iran- the, uh, excuse me, the Trump deal of the century. Uh, for the longest time, I've been telling you that um, a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital and evacuation of Jews from Judea, Judea and Samaria is not even on the table anymore. And uh, from information that was leaked to us, because this is going to be introduced within 20 days, less than that, actually, Um, is going to be introduced. And uh, from what we know. And that's an important point I I failed to mention. Uh, They said it will be um, introduced after Ramadan. Ramadan ends June 30th. So um, we can expect it any time after that. Of course, that coincides directly with my family vacation and oh if they release that uh if they release that during my uh my trip i am going to not be happy but we are dealing with washington dc and uh punctuality is not their um it's not their strong suit we'll say so uh so yeah i i maybe it'll come mid end of june we'll see Not even a single Jew is going to be evacuated from Judea and Samaria. We have almost 300,000 Jews there, maybe even more right now. And uh, in fact, every Israeli town, village, or settlement in the West Bank will remain in Israel's hand. Basically, what we're saying is Israel can continue staying where Israel is. The Palestinian towns will be under Palestinian rule. And, uh, and that's it. Jerusalem will not be divided between the two. And uh, I just don't see how the Palestinians will ever accept such a thing. I, they, they did not accept offers that were way better than that. I don't see how they will accept it. But I can tell you one thing. The Palestinians lost all the support of the Arab, Sunni Arab world 
when they were siding with Bashar al-Assad, when they were siding and collaborating with Iran. And I believe with all of my heart that um, we are going to see a great Arab pressure on the Palestinians to accept the Trump deal because what the Trump deal is eventually going to, to say is that if you're not going to accept it, we're going to make sure that we remove this leadership that is always, always rejecting everything and we put in place a much better leadership that will finally work towards peace and not towards war. I thought that was, uh, let's just say, pretty enlightening. <laughs> um, uh, so what do we take from that? We take from that not a single Jew will be evacuated from Judea, Samaria. Isn't it something how it's totally okay in, like, the United Nations to rip Jews out of their land like they did in 2005 in Gaza, literally ripped all the Jews out of Gaza because, of course, uh, you know, they, they just they can't handle the presence of Jews among them, right? Uh, so, so terrible. Uh, so the Jews have to get out of there. Um, then, of course, they elect, they elect Hamas, a terrorist group, and basically create an Islamic state there in Gaza. That has been the menace of Israel since then. So, I mean, really, we, uh, I think the Trump team is a whole lot smarter than that. I think Jared Kushner is a very smart guy. And you see that if you uh, actually listen to the whole interview. Greenblatt's a very smart guy. Friedman's a sm- smart guy. You know, and then Trump, I think, is a very smart guy as well. And, so, and uh, very practical and very realistic and I, that's why I'm getting more and more excited about this plane. If you go back and you listen to the first episode, the very first episode of this podcast to now, you have been you're going to see that my optimism has just only increased because I really had no idea, right? I really had no idea what to kind of expect, and I'm I'm excited because it looks like uh, good things are coming. It could be a viable plan, and it might not even be up to the Palestinians themselves to accept it. The Arab world might come together and say, you accept this plan or you're out of here. I mean, wouldn't that be something? Now, I'm going to be really curious how they deal with Gaza, because that, that's obviously the biggest menace of the whole deal. So that'll be very interesting to read what, what, the, what the plan is there. Because, and that's what I, I, I've said that for the past couple months, is that it could be, because I, I knew that the Palestinians, like... Uh, Amir said, uh, I've known for a long time, and all you got to do is look at basic history. The Palestinians are going to reject the plan, right? So why even bother with this plan unless you know of a way and there's a mechanism to force compliance? And it might be the Sunni Arab states that are very, very upset, right, about um, the PA aligning themselves with Assad in Syria, who is aligned with Iran and all the terrorist proxies that are giving the Levant all of this trouble, uh, they might be so incensed at the PA that they're like, look, you do this, or we're removing, uh, we're going to band together and pressure removal of leadership. So, we shall see. 
But, uh, but so anyway, all that to say, not a single Jew will be evacuated from Judea, Samaria. That's the information that he has. Every Israeli town, village, settlement under Israeli rule. Uh, and same with uh, the Palestinian Arabs. All right, same with the Arabs. Arab cities will have Arab rule. Uh, Palestinian, um, I'm sorry, Israeli have Israeli rule. And I, I, he didn't say this, but I think ultimately overall, the nation of Israel will have complete hegemony uh, over the whole thing, even though they allow uh, basically Arab rule in different cities. Uh, ultimately, it, it's all going to be Israel. Now, we'll see. I could be totally wrong, um, but uh, or Amir could be totally wrong in the information that he has. Whatever. Whatever. I, we're not going ulti- to— well, I'm sorry. There are some things we do know for sure. Um, but there are some things such as, uh, such as these that yeah, are, are a bit more up in the air. So we will see. There we, the, we'll see. Um, all right. I have to talk for a minute about an individual in our United States Congress who is one of a triumvirate of pro-boycott, divest, sanction, anti-Jew, pro-terrorist members who um, are just bringing all kinds of new enlightenment uh, to us. Of course, Cortez had apparently never seen a uh, garbage disposal before and was just so fascinated by it that she put it up on her Instagram. You can't make this stuff up. I'm telling you, she is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, but uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there. She's actually pretty dangerous because her ideas are unbelievably horrific. So, I, uh, so and again, like I said last week, I'm not, I don't pick on uh, Talib and Omar because they're Muslims. Um, we bring this up because the things that they say are unbelievably horrific. Unbelievably wrong. Um, so she, Rashida Talib, made a bizarre, I mean bizarre. This was a weird statement when it comes to the Holocaust and her ancestors' involvement in it, right? Now, I look, the last thing that I want to do is take anybody's words out of context, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to play the clip in case you haven't heard it before. We're going to play the whole thing. Um, and I think even some Republicans that have talked about this may be, may be getting it wrong to some, some extent, although the whole thing, it's still troubling, the whole thing. Uh, they, I think they are kind of taking her a little bit out of context. Um, but even still, even in context, it, the whole thing is just really bizarre, not to mention just historically ludicrous. It is a Palestinian Arab fairy tale bedtime story. I, I, I kid you not. So this is the Skullduggery podcast. Give me just a second to wind this baby up. This is the Skullduggery podcast on May 12th, 2019. Congresswoman, you've created something of a stir by coming out in favor of a one-state solution in Israel and Palestine. 
I'm sorry. It's um, and buffering. I think you may be the only uh, Democrat who's publicly supported a one-state solution. So what is your vision uh, for a one-state solution that meets both uh, uh, Palestinian and um, Israeli or Jewish national aspirations? Absolutely. And let me tell you, I mean, for me, just uh, a few, uh, I think two weeks ago or so, we celebrated um, or just it took a moment, I think, in our country to remember the Holocaust. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling, I always tell folks, when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, their livelihood, the human dignity, um, their existence in many ways have been wiped out and some people's passport. I mean, just all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post um, the Holocaust, post the tragedy and horrific um, persecution of Jews across the world at that time. And I love the fact that it was my ancestors that provided that, right, in many ways. Uh Uh, But they did it in a way that took their human dignity away, right? And it was forced on them. And so when I think about a one state, I think about the fact that why couldn't we do it in a better way where, and, and oh, I don't want people oh, to do compassion. it in the name of Judaism, just like I don't want people to use Islam in that way. It has to be done in a way of values around equality and around the fact that you shouldn't mm-hmm. oppress others so that mm-hmm. you can feel free and safe. Mm-hmm. Why can't we all be free and oh, safe why together? Can't, oh, why can't we all be? Oh, oh, why can't we all be just so free and safe? We just, oh, we just want equality. That's all the Palestinians want. That's all the Palestinian leadership wants. We just want equality. We just we've been so friendly and loving toward the Jews. I mean, I mean, I mean, we've been so friendly that we we um, encourage violence and murder against them because we well, you know, we just we spend hundreds of millions of dollars and paying families of of terrorists. Uh, a pension for for life for 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 murdering Jews. It's just oh oh oh. It's just we just we just want equality, which means we just want no Jews in there. We want um pal- we want uh, Palestine from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. Now I know she didn't say that. I know she didn't say that. But this is unbelievable on so many levels. And that little fake act of compassion on the end there, you have got to be kidding me. Someone who would not come out and specifically defend Israel's right to defend herself and condemn Hamas for indiscriminately firing rockets, hundreds and hundreds of rockets over a period of 48 hours on innocent Israeli civilians. You have got to be kidding me. Okay, I don't take a single word that this lady said. Um, so, like I said, th- this is, this is uh, it's simply unbelievable. Now, the question is, you know, she, you know, uh, I think it was Liz Cheney tweeted that she gets a calming feeling about the Holocaust and was just ripping her for that. I, I do believe that that is taken out of context. If you listen to the whole thing, the calming feeling was in reference to how her... Uh, uh, how her ancestors supposedly, in some fairy tale world of Rashida Talib, uh, supposedly provided a safe haven for Jews, and they lost so much as a result of it. Um, I don't know where she got that from. Uh, that is uh, that is not the case. But even still, that 
when you think about the Holocaust, there'd ever be any kind of calming feeling. It's just still weird. I never get a calming feeling. Even when I think about the establishment of the state of Israel uh, being post-Holocaust, I, 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 and oh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad for that, but I just, I can't imagine a scenario when I think of the Holocaust not have any kind of like <laughs> calming or, or peaceful feeling. Um, and of course, the great Dr. Michael Brown responded brilliantly to this. I'm going to hit a few excerpts from it, then we're going to end the show. We're pushing two hours here. Thank you guys if y'all have stuck with us. Thank you for sticking with me. Uh, but Again, I will be quote. I will be uh, linking to this on uh, midisnewsbrief.com. This is from stream.org. Rashida Tlaib rewrites history, and he goes through a few things on there, uh, quoting her. I'm not going to do that again because we just <coughs> did that. But here, he says, at worst, her comments are beyond insensitive and ugly. If there could be any quote, calming effect from thinking about the Holocaust, where 1.5 million Jewish babies and children were slaughtered, where 90% of Poland's 3.3 million Jews were murdered, where whole families, including multiple generations, were wiped out, where fiendish, quote, medical experiments were performed on Jewish twins, often without anesthesia. What could possibly be calming about any of this? No wonder that Tlaib received a hail of criticism from President Trump to other members of the House to political pundits and commentators. But what if, giving her the biggest possible benefit of the the doubt, she meant to say, as horrible as the Holocaust was, what calms me is to know that my people, the Palestinian people, made great sacrifices on behalf of the Jewish people so they could have a safe haven. What if that was her point? Well, she missed it just as badly here. As CNN's John King noted, Tlaib, quote, ignored the fact that Palestinian leaders at the time allied themselves with Hitler, and that total war is how the Arab world reacted to the declaration of Israeli independence. This was CNN. This isn't Fox News. This isn't One America News. This is CNN, and I watched the clip. I, I'm not going to play it here because we're short on time. Um, But this was CNN coming out and calling the BS for what it is. This is absolutely unfathomable. So, not only did they not make sacrifices to create a safe haven for the Jews, they fought tooth and nail against that safe haven. One of the most prominent Palestinian Arab leaders of the day the Grand Mufti Haj Amin al-Husseini, was a confidant of Winston Churchill, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. No. He was a confidant of the Fuhrer himself, Adolf Hitler. He was responsible for the first intifada against the Jewish population of Palestine in 1936 and he advocated for the genocide of the Jews. And there's a famous picture of the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and uh, al-Husseini sitting together. uh, I might make that the kind of the featured image of the post. The Nazis, uh, on the show notes uh, for this broadcast, 
The Nazis, for their part, appealed to centuries of Islamic anti-Semitism, hoping to fuel the fires of Jew hatred among the Muslim population in the Middle East. They even printed one million copies of an Arabic-language pamphlet that proclaimed, quote, O Arabs, do you see the time of the Dajjal has come? The Dajjal was a false messianic figure. Do you recognize him, the fat, curly-haired Jew who deceives and rules the whole world and who steals the land of the Arabs? O Arabs, do you know the servant of God? He, Hitler, has already appeared in the world and already turned his lance against the Dajjal and his allies. He will kill the Dajjal, as it is written, destroy his places and cast his allies into hell. And as for al-Husseini's meeting with Hitler in 1941, Time summarizes the relevant content of their discussion, which was published by the German government. Quote, Al-Husseini began the conversation by declaring that the Germans and the Arabs had the same enemies. Quote, the English, the Jews, and the communists. He proposed an Arab revolt all across the Middle East to fight the Jews, the English, to fight the Jews. The English, who still ruled Palestine and controlled Iraq and Egypt, and even the French, who controlled Syria and Lebanon, he also wanted to form an Arab legion using Arab prisoners from the French Empire who were then POWs inside Germany. He also asked Hitler to declare publicly, as the German government had privately, that it favored, quote, the elimination of the Jewish national home in Palestine. So that's, that's the head of the pa- uh, Palestinians for you, or you should say the Arab Palestinians at the time, because they were not called Palestinians at the time. Not surprisingly, when the UN recognized the state of Israel in 1947 to 1948, the surrounding Arab nations sought to wipe Israel off the map. With Azam Pasha, Secretary General of the Arab League, declaring, quote, It will be a war of annihilation. It will be a momentous massacre in the history that will be talked about like the massacres of the Mongols or the Crusades. Now, that's nice. This was hardly the self-sacrificing Arab population of Palestine saying, quote, we'll grudgingly give up our lands for these suffering Jews. To the contrary, these Muslim leaders were intent on finishing what Hitler started. Is it true that Palestinian Arabs have suffered over the last 70 years? Yes, those who fled from the war in 1948 have suffered greatly. While those who became citizens of the fledgling state of Israel have grown from 200,000 in 1948 to over 1.5 million today. And everybody knows that the Arabs that live in Israel have it better than those that are under Gaza and the PA. Just saying. But the Palestinians who suffered the most and still suffer today are suffering primarily because of the bad decisions of their leaders rather than because Israel is a genocidal apartheid state. That's a hard pill to swallow, but it is true. To be sure, critics of Israel will challenge the statement, putting more blame on the Jewish nation for the suffering of the Palestinians. That is a debate we will continue to have. But what is not debatable is Tlaib's rewriting of history, along with her terribly poor choice of words. What on earth was she thinking? I agree, Dr. Brown. What on earth (laughs) was she thinking? This is insane. They launched, the, the Arabs launched a war against Israel in 1948, not gave up their lands so that they could uh, uh, provide a safe haven for the Jews. I mean, do you really get any idea that, that the Palestinian, any uh, Palestinian leadership or the majority of the Palestinian population is interested in any kind of, like, creating a safe haven or safe space for the Jews? 
I don't think so. Now, here's what's interesting. Right after this happened, <clears throat> this complete fantasy rewriting of history, I'm, I'm just going to read a few bullet points from this. But one more thing about Rashida Tlaib. This was from Big League Politics that came out, confirmed Rashida Tlaib broke state and federal law by lying about her address to run for office. This was May 13th. Remember, that story broke May 12th. May 13th, this is what we get. Patrick Howley, Democrat Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib violated state election law and also federal law by lying about her residence to run for office in Michigan. Since big league politics exposed her residence lie using credit score and property records and archived information, Congressman John Bumstead communicated to us through an intermediate through an intermediary that Tlaib broke the law. Now, that's something. You've got a U.S. congressman coming and saying, yes, she did break the law. Tlaib's own father even said that Tlaib lied about her address in order to run for office, meaning that Tlaib represented a state house district she did not live in. Here is what the evidence presented below proves. Number one, Rashida Tlaib registered to vote at a false address, as she embarked on her first political campaign. Registering to vote using a false address is one of a number of crimes that fall into the voter fraud category. Two, Tlaib ran Ford represented the 12th district of the Michigan House of Representatives, even though she was not a resident of that district. Uh, that's against the law. Three, records show that Tlaib was an absentee owner at the Detroit house she claimed to live in. Four, Tlaib moved to her official Detroit apartment address, which she reported to the FEC after the election at the start of her 2018 campaign. Her new address was recorded for the first time one day before she announced her campaign for Congress. So there you have it, folks. <laughs> there you have it. Um, Tlaib could be in some trouble. Now, will she be completely inoculated from investigation? Yes, of course, from the Democrats, but will the Trump Justice Department do something about this? We don't know. Uh, we will see. Guys, thank you so much for sticking with me. This is easily the longest podcast I've ever done, but there was so much to get to that I wanted to be able to get to. Um, thank you guys so much for sticking with me. I actually want to uh, I want to now to uh, do a quick quote of the week. And I was, uh, uh, this quote, I, I chose this quote because of what's going on with Iran. Um, look, don't believe for a second, don't believe for even a, uh, a second that the Islamic Republic cannot fall. How do you like that for dramatic effect? <laughs> All right. It can it can fall, and I'm praying that it does, and that freedom and peace come to the Iranian people. As I've mentioned before, I've been going through The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and there's a quote from Bilbo Baggins that he says towards the end of the book, right? Bilbo Baggins, The Hobbit, right? The dragons have been slayed. The battle, I believe, at that point in the book has been completely won, and he says... This is what he says. So comes snow after fire, and even dragons have their ending. So comes snow after fire, and even dragons have 
their ending. The dragon that is the Islamic Republic of Iran will have its ending at some point or another. And don't believe for a second, don't believe for a second that it cannot happen soon. And I would encourage everybody within the sound of my voice to pray for such an outcome. All right, that'll do it for this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, you can get all of the articles linked in this broadcast in the show notes here at MideastNewsBrief.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star review, and tell everybody about it because it helps us grow the audience so much. Again, thank you guys so much for sticking with me through this over two-hour long broadcast, and we'll see you guys again next week.